Houston, we have a problem. Good morning, Murray Walker. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I came to the first one and I've been to all the other six. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Like the heart rate of skyrocketing. Gentlemen, start your engine! Good afternoon, radio. For those who don't know, Radio Hotmap, thanks for coming and making time. It's on everybody's mind. For those who don't know, there's a big shebang. Sorry about that. Sorry about the little, uh, um, uh, technical goodies. Radio Hotmap. Oh, cheers, boys. Cheers. Cheers. Episode 242 of Radio Hot Lap, that light-hearted and zany podcast that occasionally takes a look at motor racing, cool emerging technologies, gadgets, barbecues and casseroles in winter. But this, this day, this morning in fact, we are in gorgeous Queenstown and I'm here with a voice that many of you will recognise. We don't cover a lot in two-wheeled action, but my earliest memories of two-wheeled motorsport came from this gentleman's mouth. In fact, the Swan Series, Wayne Gardner, sliding on the power and NSR 500 around Surface Paradise, having probably picked up a little bit too much VHT at the end of the drag strip. Will Hagen, welcome. Thank you. And what a memory. Um, I remember after that, and each lap um, was chasing, oh, I'm trying to think of the, of the English guy, but it was a great old battle. And of course, Wayne later came off. But each lap under the bridge there at Surface, which was one of the fastest corners on an Australian racetrack anywhere, there was a new black line being laid. And the thing was opposite locking through there with Wayne's feet up on the pegs. And Leo Gagan said to me, he said, later, he said, did you see that? He said, I wouldn't drive a car through there like that. And he's sitting up on, on the feet on the pegs doing that on a bike. He was just aghast. And... Uh, it was just wonderful. And the Swan series, look, it's one of the things we should remember. We're told by the modern motorsport people that we've got it the best we've ever had, you know, the V8s go overseas and all the rest of it. Hang on a moment. We had the Tasman series, we had the Swan series, we had internationals racing cars and bikes at Bathurst. Uh, you know, we had wonderful motor racing in the past. We had the, the Southern Cross International Rally series which was unbelievable it got front page coverage on daily newspapers and the crowds at port macquarie where ultimately it was based it did various things in its sort of evolutionary phase but uh, the crowds there we had works teams from nissan from ford from mitsubishi it was just sensational and then you and you also had a situation where privateers people like george fury running for jerry ball rally team out of canberra could challenge the internationals. What a thrilling period in motorsport we had years ago, when, curiously, it all happened without governments being asked to pay, and, and it apparently was unnecessary for that to happen. Also without internet, digital cameras, um, <laughs> mobile phones, email, probably it was at best a teletype and a telex. Absolutely. It's quite astonishing. I, I remember Vince Tessarira coming back when he was signing some people up once 
for one of his motorcycle series, and of course he did Mr Motocross and he did the Chesterfield series for road racing bikes at, at Amaru and he did the Castrol 6R, innovated that, got the ABC, or got Channel 7 involved initially and then later the ABC. And wonderful racing again. I mean, the Japanese factories, for goodness sake, on several occasions made motorbikes to compete in the Castrol 6R. <laughs> We've got to remember these sorts of things. And, but as I say, Vince came back from a meeting with some people in, uh, in America where he was signing up some, uh, some folk uh, to come and compete with him. And one needs not to be too specific about who they were and what the, the racing was. And he said, the stuff they were having in that apartment in New York or in that meeting room, he said, uh, I'm not sure if I was doing the right thing, but it, finally it all came together. I remember a nemesis, but also a compatriot of Wayne Gardner's in those days was Malcolm Campbell. Mm. I think Malcolm always sort of, he was the bridesmaid a little bit, but I, I very much liked him, and uh, he seemed like he never quite got the right machinery. He had it on occasions. He got onto a 500 Grand Prix bike at, uh, as a wildcard rider, one of the world championship races at Phillip Island, and it just really went wrong. He went off track and across the grass for hundreds and hundreds of metres. Mal had a lot of Honda support in Australia and a lot of success, um, and was a real racer at heart. I can remember later, when tragically he'd lost a son, to road racing and Mal was still racing and he'd been racing in a 600 super sport race at Phillip Island among young guys who were trying to go on you know to be world champions in super sport super bikes or Grand Prix and it was a fierce race you know and there was this elderly sort of a guy lean and fit and hungry as he'd ever been and uh, I said to him on the podium I said Mal when will it be time to retire and and think of the words of his answer. He said, when you can be in a race like that, on a circuit like this, why would you stop? And that's the racer. Absolutely. I think the Castrol 6 Hour, if I remember, was actually run at Amaru for a while before it originally, and then it moved to Oran Park. Yes, that's right. And, and, and they were its glory days, really, at Amaru. It was just such a tight, difficult circuit. Short lap times, you know, about a minute. Um, and some bikes eventually were getting to the stage where they weren't getting into top gear as they went up the hill. But nevertheless, wonderful uh, racing there, wonderful track. It was the spot to have <laughs> the often sacrificial motorbike midst yes, the enthusiast in the crowd that wanted to yeah, no, that, keep that. warm or enliven the day. It often fell on the weekend when we went to daylight saving. So midst the 10am start, but all the, the preamble that preceded that, uh, you know, getting to the track early and you'd missed an hour's sleep as well. Uh, after picking some strawberries along the Annan Grove Road on the way to Amaru, you know, it was it was a great event. It was um, a great place, wasn't it? It really was. It, it had and, the dirt uh, circuit, it had the motocross track and it had the, yeah. obviously the regular circuit and you could sit on the rock ledges at stop go and see them come around. And Absolutely, good spectating track, great rider challenge track, but beat this one too. You say the dirt circuit and there was a hill climb and all sorts of things. I sat in a Ford Escort BDA, the passenger side, with one Ari Vartanen around the dirt circuit there. And for a couple of laps, 
I never went and looked through the windscreen, curiously. I just kept looking through the, the side windows because we were so sideways. He'd just come out of one corner on an enormous amount of opposite lock and then flick it and then you'd be lined up on, a, on the opposite, opposite lock for the next corner. Just something to behold. It was wonderful. It was a very, uh, very great circuit. I'm, I'm you know, privileged to have had some time there. Six-hour relay races, I remember racing against Mel Rose because he was always oh, there yeah, yeah, in yeah. the blue Tirana coming yeah, out on stuff. top. And uh, the, the CRC 300, 300 with the RX-7s with Terry Shield and Peter McLeod and Phil Alexander. And Moffat. Barry Jones. Yeah, Barry Jones, that's with right. In, the, in Daryl Lee chocolates. That's right, it was too. too. That's funny, isn't it? Yeah. We'll have to remind Tony yeah. Quinn about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, it was actually it was Jones and Jones because they had it Alan. Was. It was. Yeah, that's right. In there Teamed as well. up and I think they won that particular year, they, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it was uh, Murray Carter and I think uh, um, Alan Moffat turned up. Uh, the odd time. I do remember that Moff was the only guy that had fuel injection in his group CRX7 towards the end of it. But the, the ruling stipulated that you had to make it available to other competitors, so we gave it to Murray Carter, <laughs> which he obviously didn't perceive as a threat. I can remember Moffat going to Bathurst with his RX-7 and having quite a deal of trouble there. And Murray Sale, motorcycle rider, racer, um, and riding for Kawasaki when Greg Hansford was there and other people. And Murray, um, uh, Murray saying, these car guys, what are they on about? Why have they got the same fuel mixture settings here as down in Sydney? We're elevated here. You've got to... And, you know, they knew all about jetting and carburation because the, the, the two-stroke bikes were so critical. And he just couldn't believe that they were having trouble, you know, that they would arrive there with the same settings as down at near sea level. So that's what I remember, too. Moff's car either ran good at the bottom or good at the top. Yeah. But that was... You know, that was on the, also on the era when we were just starting to, to get into <coughs> data coming out of the cars. And a Netcom, I think, were involved yeah. in uh, one of the very early Skylines, the R31 or something like that. Yeah. They had to run two SIM cards for the network. So one network worked at the bottom and one worked at the top. Oh, truly, truly. Well, the other thing, too, about Bathurst and the bottom and the top was that back in those simpler days... Uh, gearing in cars, and you generally could have gearing that suited one thing, either climbing the mountain or down Conrod, but you couldn't have the ideal for both. You'd, you'd either drop some top speed for getting up the mountain quickly, or you'd uh, labour a little bit with, with not quite the right, right ratios to get you up the hill. Uh, but you'd be set for a really good top speed down Conrod, and you'd have to work out which was, which was optimal. In the big book of excuses in motor racing, do you recall the, the um, Peter Brock soap suds incident at Wonderlic? Oh. Oh, was it Wonderlic? At yes. Amaru. Yeah, at Amaru, where he blamed his, a little shunt coming into the pit lane on the tea lady. Well, I can name the woman. <laughs> um, it wasn't the tea lady, it was Sharon McKay, um, partner of Peter who were running the media centre on that corner and allegedly she'd let the stuff drain out of the sink and it had just gone down a pipe and thing. As you say, a great excuse. Um, we're not sure if it was... <laughs> how valid it was. You've been in broadcasting for a long time. How have you felt things are with the change to 
just-in-time technology. Uh, I, to me, I, whilst it's now obviously a necessity, to some extent I find the romanticism has gone. Yes. Um, I mean, a lot of things have changed. Lap scoring, for instance, uh, if we can go away fractionally from broadcasting but still staying electronic. And uh, I can remember in my second Bathurst, which was 66, I did my first one for Channel 7 in 65. And there was the official ARDC lap scoring. Various teams had their own lap scoring, and Channel 7 had its lap scoring. And, of course, it was all a lap or more behind. So when you're talking of Bathurst laps, which could eke out to more than three minutes for the slower cars back in those days, then, you know, you might have been talking of a position of eight or nine minutes ago. <laughs> and anyway, at this particular time in 66, we went round and we said, said to the... BMC team running the Cooper S's, that ultimately came in the first nine places. Uh, what's the situation? Who's leading? Went to the Channel 7 thing and went to the official ARDC thing, which ten again tended to be the slower of the lot of them because they were more, had to be sure that they were absolutely right, which they weren't always, but they tried to be. Um, and the short of it was, at this particular moment, and whatever the time lapse was to get to the three outlets, we had three different leaders given to us, so imagine trying to work out how you couched your words, you know, because you had your own idea of you'd been watching it and following it and you dared not go away, you know. And I can remember, for instance, with the Castrol six hour, um, six hours of motorbike racing, you know, you didn't mind a coffee during the thing, but I wouldn't have a coffee because once you started piddling, um, you were going to be doing it regularly and you were going to lose track on a one minute a lap lap time you were going to lose track of the whole blessed thing you had to stay in the commentary box there was a woman incidentally Lamar I'm getting a little bit away from the subject but I'll get back but to that's it I'll right. try that's to what, that, that, that's exactly <laughs> what radio is about it's tangential <laughs> there was a woman who used to lap score for one of the teams at Lamar or perhaps she was hired by whoever could hire her at the time and some weeks out from the Le Mans 24-hour race, she would start to limit her uh, solids and go on to a liquid diet and then, as got close to the race, went on to a really restricted liquid diet. And she lap-scored without moving, without piddling, the entire 24 hours. And, of course, she could have cars that were 10 laps apart, you know, or more, probably. And unless you kept track of it, um, you were gone. You know, I can remember um, doing a, a, a telecast at Sandown and I had a lap scorer beside me and uh, uh, it was a friend who wasn't so used to doing that and he tried to lap score them as they went from the start line down to, it wasn't Peter's corner, it was the corner before, before they changed the pit lane, but the end of basically the, uh, the uh, pit straight. And so they'd only gone a few hundred metres, and he tried to lap score them then, which of course wasn't the end of lap one, it was the start of lap one. And he got it all wrong, and he threw his hands, and he said, oh, oh. I said, And I had to take a headphone, headset off and say, just forget that, do it again when they come past next time, and there'll be more spread out, you know. We're just about to lose track of the whole blessed thing, and we were on the first lap of a race. Um, broadcasting. When was your first year at Le Mans? Um, I went at the end of, towards the end of 75, I'd been in public relations at Volvo, my second car company I'd worked in, 
Public Relations at BLMC Stroke Leyland Australia. And in fact, ran in the fleet cars, chose the route, the invitees, prepared the press kit and everything for the P76 release. Um, and then I'd been about a year at Volvo and I was leaving there and I knew I didn't want to continue in automotive PR but didn't know what I wanted to do. I hadn't been overseas, my wife had. We had two young boys, both were under three. And I came home and I said, look, why don't we head to Europe? Just happened to have enough money to be able to buy a car on overseas delivery, which meant if you were away for 15 months, you could bring it back without paying duty or sales tax. So in the situation of the car I eventually chose, a CX2200 Citroen, which was retailing for 12 and a half grand in Australia. I Peter could, McLeod would love you for that. I could buy it for five, and uh, which I did. Um, so uh, I commentated in England and in one, one circuit, Ingolston in Scotland, um, through 76 and early 77. Um, so uh, that was my... I'd done 11 Bathysts with Channel 7 at that, so 65 to 75 inclusive. Um, but yeah, look, I, I don't know if there's romance in broadcasting. Um, I think one of the things that is a bit of a pity at Bathurst, and it's gone on for a long, long time. I can remember when I came back in 77 and didn't get back with Channel 7, but I was sitting in the Stagecoach uh, Cafe in Bathurst with Jeff Healy of Channel 7, who was the man behind in-car cameras in the world, in the world. He came up with the whole concept, and he was a technical consultant to the Sydney Olympics telecast in 2000, despite being retired. A great technical guy. And I was sitting with him and with Evan Green, and Jeff said, oh, we've got this many cameras this year and we're going to do this and they can do that and all the rest of it, and next year we'll have this. And, and Evan, the wonderful, lovely Evan Green, said, Jeff, just let's learn to use what we've got. And one of the, the things I think about television coverage of motorsport is that it's equipment um, controlled and what they concentrate on, I always felt in those days, but I suspect to a degree today, perhaps a little bit less, but what they concentrate on is equipment, technology, you know, cameras that fly along railway lines overhead and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think one of the pities is that they've got so many cameras and, and such a, a, an ability to, um, to zoom in on things that you, they can follow the one car, and indeed they could look in the window of one car and frame the driver's head almost all the way around the track. And I'd just love to see them on occasions hold on a corner and widen and see a whole squadron of cars come through on different lines and things and see the gaps between this battling group of three and this pair and then various cars coming through one by one and so on. Um, I can remember one of the, the most vivid um, images of, of the speed of, of racing that I saw, uh, and I can remember from television, was of a very distant shot after Eau Rouge at Spa-Francorchamps circuit and of cars dashing through the, the greenery of the Eiffel Mountains there, and they were two little dots. And there's this great surround of green. Sorry, the Ardennes. The Ard 
Well done. Thank you. Eiffel Mountains Thank are you. Nürburgring. Thank you. The two are nearby, but yeah, no, well said. Um, and uh, the, the, the feeling of speed, or the speed you could see there, was just spectacular. Was this the old and spa circuit? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And, and um, that's what we miss these days with the cameras coming in constantly, so tight, so close on the cars. Sometimes you're missing the image of speed and you're missing the image of comparison of where people break and the lines they take and all of that sort of thing. I'd like to see more use of wider shots. But, uh, Certainly in Formula One you see that with big long straights, the lenses are so powerful you, you just yeah, have no impression no. whatsoever. And, you've uh, got to go back to the old movies to actually see And that. we see no, we don't hear it from the commentators and, and in the way that the cameras capture the image we often, you have to really look at it closely to realise how bloody fast they're braking and how much speed they're knocking off on these things. We see the car, the, the, the speedos and things on television and they're telling us how many gear changes they do, what gear they're in, what revs they're going to and all the rest of it. But seldom do we see that fierce braking of 50 metres or something where they knock off 200 kilometres an hour, you know, which to me is more relevant probably than the acceleration. You you're mentioning about uh, the guy who was behind in, uh, camera technology. I, I, I recall a name when I was working for ABC Television called David Earl. Which, yeah. and I think he was an English guy as well, or, but he had something to do with ABC engineering. And yeah, well said, yeah. I can't pinpoint it. Back in the days where, where ABC had huge outside broadcast trucks, you'd remember that, folks. Yeah, the big double-decker buses that would pull up with all the equipment and the control rooms. I've read about it. <laughs> who are you talking about, the guy who invented race cam? Well, I just remember a name, David Earl, who worked somewhere... I, I remember David Earl, but there's another David Earl around too, isn't yeah, there? Former. Yeah. Well, former Ford racer. Yeah, that's long right. Long ago, and now he's a leading architect Well-dressed and smart-looking young... He's a leading architect in Melbourne, and he, mm. uh, he does a bit of driver management on the side. Yeah, that's right. Former photographer as well for a brief minute back in the 70s, as I was. But no, it's, it's a guy working for Channel 7 who invented or perfected race cam and ended up selling the technology to yeah. the American CBS, used it in the Daytona 579, I think, for the first time. Mm. And he said, uh, Porter, John Porter? It was Porter, was, you, you're quite right. He, he was the guy him. under Jeff Healy yeah, but who he was made it happen. Yeah, the yeah. engineer. Yeah, no, well said. And they sent, sold that technology to the United States and Porter and some of, some of his partners set up over in Connecticut in the 80s and they did well, I suspect, mm. selling that in-car camera mm. technology all around the world. And it's now, of course, it's ubiquitous. It's in it. Yeah. You know, if you haven't got about 17 angles of the drive Absolutely. inside the car now, you're just not on the pace, are yeah. you? So, or indeed a, but it all a camera attached to the front shock absorber. It was like 1977. It was fitted into uh, Peter Williamson's and uh, that Toyota brings up, that brings up the question of, or rather, our segment of motorsport mythbus. A mouthful. Mythbusters. Was the validity of Peter Williamson's taco with the in-car camera? It always seemed to be pointing down at 5:30, but there were, you know, some questions whether it actually could run like that. Do you recall 5 that? 5:30. What do you like, mean? You know, you know eight and a half thousand, nine thousand RPM, pointing down to the bottom of the dial. All right. Whereas, like, peak revs were always well, the, the best operating revs were meant to be in mm. the vertical. Oh, are you suggesting it was a dummy instrument or something, I'm are you? Are you suggesting...? Well, this is a conspiracy theory. I've 
Yeah. Which I've never heard. With which I'm unfamiliar. Yes, thank well, you. Well, once when I asked John Bow, talking about telemetry in the early days, and he's in the cat car, and I was doing some stuff with him, trying to get telemetry out um, onto mobile phones, and I said, look, I'd like to get, you know, ambient cockpit temperature out there, and he said, they'll never do it. And I said, well, why? He said, have you ever thought that it might not be as hot as we make it out to be? Hmm. And that's well, back in because the late 1970s, telemetry was something you used to ring your mother and tell her what time you were oh, getting this home. Was, this was 2000. But I remember... Well, the, I'm sorry, we're jumping around, aren't we? Well, we're just talking we're about... One minute ago, we're on Peter Williamson's... Um, well, I remember a thing from Peter Williamson's car, and it was the first in-car camera shot, I think I'm correct in saying. And they were so keen to use it that uh, they went to it as, as quickly as they possibly could, which was on the opening lap, the first time up Mountain Strait. So we've got four classes in the, in the event, including the two quick classes that have gone like blazers. Peter Williamson is heading the, the best of the rest, the two litres and smaller. So they go to his in-car camera on Mountain Strait looking at an absolutely empty track on lap one of the race because all the quick boys have disappeared and Willow's at the head of the rest of them. So there was nothing, there was, there was nothing worse to illustrate the, the frantic nature of lap one at Bathurst than looking out of a car that was at the head of the pack with a camera, what you're alluding to or what Mark was saying about the number of cameras and the, the fact that you can swivel them mm. and look at all sorts of things, the fact that the thing was fixed and looking out through the windscreen and nowhere else. Mm. And then they... <laughs> but then he could also, you know, talk on the way through. Shut up. And later on, of course, that caught them out because he, over the top of the mountain and down, he was, you know, much faster than overall quicker cars and he was getting stuck behind them and he used, um, shall we say, cuss words... <laughs> when he was getting caught behind cars and that, that all went out live and of course, you know, in the late 70s it was oh, scandalous. People you know. were fainting. Yes, Fainting were. in lounge rooms, turning off television sets. And it's probably forgotten but that Robert Holden had uh, did he have a camera on his bike? I forget, but we certainly spoke to him two-way while he was racing in the Castrol 6-hour at Oran Park at one stage in an ABC broadcast. And I don't think that's been done before or since for one good reason or another. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> oh, I, I thought it was better than that, but perhaps it wasn't. That's right. So how have you adapted to technology? Are you a technology guy? Are you a gadget guy? No, I was just looking at a, a newspaper 20 minutes ago, actually, and somebody saying... Um, talking about, uh, you know, linking your computer to your phone and updating your dates and God only knows what, and thinking there should be little schools or classes you can go to where older people who need to know um, can find out what their priorities ought to be and how to link up and how it works and what you should and shouldn't be in, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or, as I say, how to... Uh, copy the contacts in your phone and, and all of this sort of stuff, you know, and integrate it with your computer and so on, because, no, I don't know much about that at all. I just gradually scrape along. In fact, it seems not long ago that Peter McKay was saying to me, Willie, you've got to get email. You know, it's pretty good. You can look up this stuff and uh, you can send that to that. And I said, oh, really? Oh, gosh. <laughs> 
And I mean, really, in terms of our lifetime, it's not that long ago, is it? It isn't. No. It really, it's ast astonishing the technical revolutions that are going on by the day, literally. And uh, look, the whilst I suppose a necessary device in business, they are a bit of a, you know, they're habitual for people who use them and find, find myself doing it. You know, well, you go out to a restaurant and there's five people all playing with their iPhones, mm. not having a conversation. So I, th I think there's like a, an opportunity for a T-shirt which says, leave the fucking thing at home. Well, a friend of mine, um, we've been mates for a long time. We met when we were just teenagers at school. And he thinks it's rude to put your phone on the table in a restaurant. He thinks you should keep it in your pocket and ignore it, but you're there with company. And uh, he's a good thinking guy, this guy, and I think he's probably right, you know, but as you say, it's become, it's become the fad, hasn't it? Uh, it's probably like the early days of the motor car. It'll even out as we become more used to it and as it becomes friendlier to operate and things happen more simply or less noticeably. But uh, we're really in quite early days of this evolution. The, the digital age has brought deadlines down, right. down and down, has it not? I mean, the tolerance for, for publications and uh, media, you know, distribution yeah. networks are such that I've got to have it now. As I as always find it interesting, and I like your guys' opinions, you guys' opinions, um, that, you know, people say, I've got to get it up and I've got to get that story up before that other website or whatever. Does it really matter that much? You know, is a punter going to be aggrieved because Fairfax got it up five minutes earlier or later than News Limited? Well, they won't know because normal people are not yeah. looking at multiple websites or reading yeah. multiple publications. Is it that important, Mark? Professionally, it is. Yes. Yes. You know, it's a competition with your editor and things. Yeah. Rival media organisations, which you know drives us. You know, just as race drivers are competing and the competitive urge is to win, well, same professionally, journalists are like anyone else, you're competing mm. to win if you can, so you mm. want to get it up first, but the reality, so it's, it's, you know, among your peers it's important, but, but the reality is that the vast majority of your readership aren't comparing. But another aspect of it that you're not discussing and that I rarely hear discussed is um, the quality of the story or, you know, the readability of the thing, you know, people are talking about being first in terms of time, but there are other factors to consider, aren't there? Oh, of course. I mean, there should be, you know, depth and perspective and mm. proper. Which may take five minutes longer, and yeah. it might justify. Or it might take five hours or five days longer, yeah. depending on, you know, the yeah. depth required. And so, if you're just spitting out the simple news, mm. you know, the what I call the cat sat on the mat version, well, that's easy. Anyone can do that. But if something is more complex and requires some sort of analysis or informed comment or some historical perspective, well, that's where hopefully guys like you and I come into our own. Well, you know, <laughs> having seen. Thank, thank you for including me. And I, I oh, just, you know. As you were talking, I'm thinking that I remember a quick guy called Wayne Webster. He could get a story up very quickly, couldn't he? And be first to the bar, often. Mm. Yeah, well, he always won that race. There was never any competition there. But he yeah. won the entertainment race, too, didn't yeah. he? His story was generally entertaining, oh, albeit yeah. that it might have been light on, on occasion yeah. on facts. Yeah. Yeah. Or correct facts. He, yeah. he, was, 
But if you're chasing a deadline in anything, oh, yeah. you have to be fast and you have to be accurate, so it's a balance. And, you know, there are guys like, as you said, Wayne Webster, another perfect example these days is Michael Lynch, a sports writer age, who is phenomenally quick, but not only quick, you know, he still mm. tells a good story mm. and it's, it's, it's accurate and it reads well. So, you know, I'm still at the stage of, well, I have progressed from, you know, a chis chiselling on a bit of stone at least I've now upgraded to a power drill on stuff. <laughs> I remember... Is that a fablet? Mark, you may not be aware of this story. It was a wonderful Wayne Webster story. He's heading, heading to... Well, he's in America. He's just arrived, but he's got to travel across to the other side uh, on a Mazda trip. Whence they lose a space shuttle. And he's rung by his editor, you're in America, do the story. And he goes for a quick wander and he talks of people sobbing in the streets and everything and all he'd done actually was apparently sort of have a look quick look at some stuff on television but you know he had it was all this emotion wound into it and the short of it was that in his dash to get this story done he mentioned the 78,000 ton spaceship and I said that's pretty good Wayne Webby as I called mm -hmm. him that's not bad. It's about the weight of the Queen Mary. Did it, did it have a swimming pool and a dirty big <laughs> prop shaft and propeller as they shot this thing casually up into space? And, and the next day when he ran a follow-up story, 24 hours apart, of course, in, in terms of the urgency of those days, um, he'd also moved the location of the, of the fatality by about a thousand miles. <laughs> oh, dear. That would have been 1986. January 1986. Yes. Yes. I, I was talking about that last night. I was here in New Zealand and saw it live on television. Challenge, space shuttle challenges exploded. There you go. But um, speaking of speaking of tablets, just think how ahead of his time Moses was. <laughs> we came down from the mountain with two tablets. He just didn't have <laughs> warranty on his glass, did he? No, they were an early version. <laughs> they certainly were. There's um, that wonderful cartoon, isn't there, that popular in newspaper offices of a bloke chiselling away with a hammer and, and stone chisel, you know, and he's, he's about, about the third line. Deadline? Deadline? What are you talking about? Deadline. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Stone has used the tablet somewhere in his, uh, in his scribblings. Indeed. Now, Will, any good in the kitchen? Any good on the barbecue? No. No tips? No. Curiously, my wife was a, a good cook. And my two boys are both good, good cooks. Toby's a quite elegant cook and does all sorts of fancy stuff and, and things. Kim, his brother, who's a country vet and very much a country person, quite different to, to Toby, who's very much the city guy and on and off aircraft to fancy European places and American and so on. Um, and Kim's a good basic cook who does most of the cooking for his family. But no, their father is nigh on useless. If you take me outside, fried eggs, French toast. Um, I can whir up a, a modest coffee. <laughs> no, I don't have an interest. And I've never quite got there, no. But you enjoy it. Enjoy, oh, enjoy the devouring. Oh, absolutely. And the, uh, your experience on this New Zealand uh, sojourn? It's been lovely, it really has. Um, I was reminded, I remember flying out of Queenstown years ago, and I've been reminded of the spectacular arrival in Queenstown as the plane, if it's successful, wends its way close to mountains and below, well below mountain peaks. 
as it comes into land or wins its way out. And uh, it's better than the, a lot of the computer games that you could buy, it really is. And uh, a lovely area, and in terms of what Tony Quinn has created down at Cromwell, quite astonishing, I mean genuinely. I've seen, I've seen a lot of circuits created and have, unfortunately a fair few disappear. And what I've seen there, and you know, I must say I don't take very kindly to the Herman Tilke stroke Bernie Eccleston Formula One ones, where the priorities seem to be the quality and convenience of pit lane garages, VIP hospitality suites, the grandstands generally, and then somewhere down the line they start to think of the layout of what is generally a fairly featureless and anonymous racetrack. And always a tight first term. Yeah, and this place has just got uh, a wonderful track with enormous variety, great length to it, um, and so much so well thought out that it's just wonderful. I mean, to create an area on the track that will be suitable for filming and, and be able to look like a road in Switzerland or a road in America or a road in Asia, if you like. They can put their own lines down, run whichever side of the road they like and fiddle around with the background of the trees and things. It's just astonishing and um, clever, really clever and thoughtful and uh, set a new standard, actually. Phil. Phil Brannigan from Motorsport News has just turned up in the dying embers of this podcast. Mate, what have you got to say for yourself, um, apart from you've had too many oysters? I think that's possibly a, an occupational hazard of being a motor journal, motoring journalist in this part of the world, but um, I'm not going to know for some time clearly whether those oysters kick in. <laughs> but the, um, I mean, Queenstown's a beautiful place. It's central Otago region I've never been before. It's just very impressive. There's lots to do. And now there's this amazing motor racing facility or a motor sport facility. It's a, motor, it's a motoring participation facility as well. It's a venue that has a racetrack, according to Mr Quinn. And I think that's a good description. And I suggested to him that it, it is a recreation of the philosophy of Brooklands, which started in, what, 1911, I think? Faded out by the end of the start of World War II. And curiously, then became a wartime sort of base for creating aircraft and things, and now is dominated by Mercedes-Benz, which is a bit of a twist. Um, but the saying at Brooklands was, the right crowd and no crowding. <laughs> it's about the experience, I think. It's, it's about not necessarily going out there in your race car and trying to win. I mean, so much of what we see in motorsport these days is motor racing. And Tony made a very good point that if your capabilities and those of your car indicate that you're going to finish 10th or 12th in the race and you do better than that, even though you don't win, it's actually a pretty good result. And uh, I, I think it's got a great future. I can see people coming from all over New Zealand, but I can also see people not coming, coming from not only Australia, but also across the other, the other piece of water, because it's such a great facility. It is such a great place to visit. And it's one of those places where often people in motor racing feel guilty about dragging their spouses off some godforsaken racetrack in the middle of nowhere so that we can indulge in our passion and our wives have to make the best of it. But uh, it looks like this one's going to be a success because there's a very nice restaurant and a wine bar. There's lots and of things And that's what the girls like to do at lunchtime and get away from the 
whilst uh, the men hang around under the stag. And even the kids. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mini golf and, and a little a little replica of Bathurst. There wasn't much overtaking space around there. No, there wasn't. There's clearly some work to do. I, don't, I also noticed a distinct lack of safety trikes on the map of Bathurst <laughs> for the kids. But it's just it's just a tremendously impressive achievement, and only time will tell what what place it's going to take in the motor racing uh, motorsport hierarchy. Mate, away from motorsport, are you any good on the, in the kitchen or barbecues? You got a specialty? I don't own a barbecue, but I am I'm a good cook. I do 75% of the cooking in my house, and that's not an exaggeration. My wife and my extremely thin kids will testify. What's, but, uh, what's your specialty? Any good, would you, are you a starter on MasterChef? Are you, well, you couldn't no, I'm probably a little bit old to branch out into that sort of arena, but uh, no, I, I, I like doing a dinner party. I like doing two or three courses. And... I've been a guest at his place uh, under his cooking supervision. It was most enjoyable. And you survived well. I did. I did. I wasn't sick at all. I'm looking at your bootstroke shoes. They look as though they're made of good leather. Are, are we still on the podcast? These are... Yeah. <laughs> you look as a podcast of... Un unusual. From whence did they come? Are we on the ABC now, Will? Tell me the answer. <laughs> the Timberlands. I bought them at Macy's. Timberlands. Okay. Yeah, unusual. They're extraordinarily comfortable, even they look, they look like it, and, and they're really good travelling shoes, because you can get them on and off. Well, thanks for your time um, today. Thank you for having yeah, me. and having a bit of a blab. Thank you, John. You too, as a, a random you know, drop-in in the sun. The invoice is as good as in the mail. Thanks for listening to uh, Radio Hot Lab, episode 242, and uh, 242A with uh, Gordon Lomas coming up shortly with his uh, very interestingly green, stripy polo shirt.